Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today, I am here with Matt LeMay. Matt is an author of several books. He's a product coach. He has a history of experience doing product management at places like Bitly and Google, and he's currently the co-founder of Sudden Compass. Matt, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. Thank you so much, Eric. It is so nice to chat with you. My background, like that of many product people, is bizarre and nonlinear, I would say. I... Uh, I was a professional musician and a music writer. Then I did marketing for a music nonprofit. Wound up working in product management completely by accident, having several years of trial by fire and egregious mistakes, getting some vague sense that I knew what I was doing, starting to share some of the lessons I had learned and finding that other people were learning similar lessons. And really, I've just been in the process of finding like-minded folks and trying to help make things a little bit easier for working product folks out there in the world because it is not it is not easy out there for sure. So tell me about your time doing product at Bitly and Google. You know, what did you learn from there? What would you have done different? Sure. So Bitly was fascinating. I was the first product manager at Bitly. And again, I was a product manager by accident. I didn't know what a product manager was, nor did I know how to be one. I certainly did not know how to be a good one. I would say that what I learned above all else from that is that as a product manager, the things that you think are impediments to doing your job are your job. So things like stakeholder communication, all the little things that go into making sure your team is healthy and functioning well. I was really frustrated for the first couple of years I worked there because I kept asking, when am I, when am I going to do the things that product managers are supposed to do? When do I make the roadmap? When do I do all this really strategic, important stuff? And what it took me, really, the, the three years I was there to learn was that all those other little things I, were doing, I was doing, those were how those strategic important things happened. The way I communicated to folks, the way I managed those day-to-day interactions of my team, that being a valuable strategic product manager isn't about only doing strategic seeming work. It's about bringing that connective mindset to everything you do. That was a huge lesson for me, and I I wish I had honored and learned that lesson sooner. By the time I got to Google, I came in through an acquisition of Songza. Songza was a fantastic product, fantastic team, just a, a real joy and a treat getting to work with those people every day. And frankly, when I got to Google, my biggest lesson was that at that time, Google was not really where I wanted to be as a product manager. You know, I think I had learned that I had gotten confident enough in my own perspective on the role to know that not every role was going to be a fit for every person at every time. And being able to walk away is its own particular kind of strength and lesson in the product management world. So tell me a little bit more about that. Why, why wasn't it a fit? It wasn't a fit in part because I just had a really different sense of where I wanted the product to go um, in terms of Songza being acquired. And it wasn't a fit because I was still in a position where I really liked being in, I don't want to say a mess, 
but I liked being in an environment where there were fewer processes, fewer well-understood constraints. I don't want to say that I am a person who thrives on chaos because I don't think that's true, but I like figuring out the map while I'm navigating the map, if that makes sense. I kind of like shaping the territory around me and thinking about things in a bigger sense. And it just seemed like that was not the place for me to do that, that particular moment. And that is, you know, in no way a negative reflection of anyone or anything, myself included. But I think that there is a really profoundly important moment in a lot of product managers and product people's careers where you learn you learn to kind of suss out a situation where your approach is not the right approach for the problems at hand. And you're able to walk away from that and say, cool, that's a lesson learned and it's all good. So music now too, you you obviously, I look behind you, I, I see the, the music, right? <laughs> the instruments. Music obviously is an important part of your life. I've seen a lot of connections with product leaders and music. What do you, why do you think that is? Oh, how long do you have? Um, I got a couple hours. <laughs> all right, great. Me too. I think that, um, so when I started working in product, one thing that became clear to me very quickly was that a lot of the lessons I learned about how to keep a team motivated, how to work with people who have very specialized and esoteric skills, these were things that came out of my music days. I mean, if you can get, you know, four other 22-year-olds motivated enough to wake up at six in the morning and drive from Dayton, Ohio to Columbus, Ohio to play a show for five people, then getting a team to ship software every two weeks certainly seems like an approachable challenge. I think the funny thing is, is people coming from music learn how to do this with no resources. It is always very funny to me when coming from the music world when people are like, oh, you know, our startup only raised 10 million. We're really resource constrained. I'm thinking like, we used to eat Wendy's dollar side salad so that we could afford the gas to get to the next city. The Even thinking in terms of thousands of dollars was incredible wishful thinking in my musician days. So I think one of the things you learn is to think beyond the resources available to you right now and stay really focused on why you're doing what you're doing. And I think those lessons have stuck with me, I hope, and have helped me out more than a lot of other more technical or ostensibly product-related lessons that I've learned. That's very interesting. Yeah, I, I wonder if that holds across the board. I'm going to have to ask some more of my musician friends who are product managers, product leaders now, you know, about the connection too. But I have seen that more and more. So now you've started Sudden Compass. Yes. Uh, tell me about it and what made you want to start it. I'm so excited about Sudden Compass. So I have two business partners, Sonny Bates and Trisha Wong. And we met, we all met about five years ago. And I was familiar with Trisha's work in particular. Trisha has done a lot of amazing writing about qualitative research. Sunny has done a lot of work. She put together the founding team for Kickstarter and has done a lot of work with the TED Talk Brain Trust. We all met at this moment. This was 2014. This moment when we saw a lot of people looking for simple answers and silver bullets in an increasingly complex world. And in our different fields, Sunny working in you know, fundraising and headhunting, Trisha working in research and design, me working in product, we saw all of these fields losing their humanity a little bit. People working in service of tools rather than tools working in service of people. And I still see this in the product management world all the time where teams spend more time thinking about what road mapping tool they're going to use than thinking about what product they're going to build. 
where one of the first questions I always guess that get asked, and it's a fair question, is like, what are your favorite product management tools? And it's a good question, but it's not the most important question. The way we work with each other, the texture of those interactions, the day-to-day practice of communication, the humanity at the center of the work we do is so important and so much more important than the specific tools and technologies we use to achieve the outcomes we're trying to achieve. So when I met Sonny and Trisha, we all were in these similar places where we were realizing that the solutions to the specific business problems we were brought in to solve were human solutions. They were questions of how we communicate. In Trisha's case, they were questions of how we learn from people rather than abstracting people out to avatars that we could control and dashboards. So we realized that we all had this shared, strong belief veering at times into unreasonableness and that we should work together and see how we can help companies solve the problems they're trying to solve by taking this truly human-centric approach and thinking about the human systems, the systems of interaction and meaning that they can use to solve those problems. Yeah, let's dig into that a little bit or in just a second here. It's interesting. Uh, we'll stay on the topic of tools for a second. It's interesting. Yeah. Like, I work for a, you know, arguably a product management tools company. We mm-hmm. describe it as a platform. I never asked anyone, you know, what are your favorite product management tools, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I always think that, like, you know, the big thing is understanding what problems they're trying to solve and then see if, you know, the platform makes sense, right? And hope, hope we're building our platform in a way that makes sense to help product managers solve the kind of problems that they run into day in and day out. But I guess that's not always the case with people, right? No, I mean, it's funny because I, I know a lot of people who, who work in the platforms or tools space. And generally speaking, the people building these know better than anyone else that, again, it all depends on, on what you're trying to do. There's a lot of different tools out there. Some are going to work better for some teams and for some problems than for others. You know, I think the reality is most tools are good for something. And all tools are usually fine if you use them well. Once you get to the point of really optimizing, thinking about which tool is best suited for this task, there is a conversation to be had. But I get so frustrated at times. I'll give you an example. We were speaking at a, at a data conference in New York a couple of years ago about the importance of merging qualitative and quantitative data, which is something we talk about a lot. And somebody came to me and said, oh, this is so interesting. We have one team that's working in relational databases and another team that's working in kind of an object-oriented NoSQL database. What tool can we use to connect them? And I said, well, help me understand your problem a little bit. What's going on? Walk me through an example of of a moment when you're hitting friction. And this person said, yeah, so for example, the other team will run a query. And then when the query comes to us, we don't really understand what it's supposed to accomplish. So we have a hard time translating it. I said, well, that's not really a tooling problem per se. It sounds like you need to document the question you're asking and the purpose of the queries you're running so that as you move from one technical system to another, you then can leverage your expertise and your tool set to solve this particular problem. This person kind of looked at me and said, okay, yeah, but what tool can I use to do that? I said, you can write a sentence in a Microsoft Word document. You can use email. You can write something on the back of a napkin and pass it to each other in the office. Yeah, but we've got a budget that we got to spend here. Like, what tools can we use? And it was, it was a wake-up moment for me. And I empathize with it enormously because communication is really hard and really complex and involves lots of different people and emotions and assumptions. There's a reason why people want 
these tools and technologies to solve their problems for them. Because it would be great if we didn't have to deal with all of those messy human things. But we do. That's the reality we live in. And I think we ignore that reality, not only at our own peril as individuals, but often at the great peril of our objectives as teams and organizations. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and relates to this concept you talk about, about customer centricity too, right? Yeah. To use mm-hmm. that to drive growth. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. This is one of the many lessons I learned. And, and Trisha Wong, my business partner, is such a brilliant person in so many ways. But in this topic in particular, you know, Trisha has been working for years to kind of reinvigorate the excitement around qualitative research. Because there's all this talk about customer centricity. It's become everybody, like, find me a company that doesn't claim to be customer centric right now, that doesn't talk about customer centricity or customer obsession in some ways. But the way they approach it still feels often very abstract and very sanitized. We did a workshop with a leadership team from a company once where they wanted to know about customer service. They said, we really, we love customer service. We're a customer service company. We want to learn about a company that's doing great customer service. And we said to them, okay, what's a company that you've heard is doing great customer service? And they said, we keep hearing about Home Depot, that they're doing great customer service. We said, great, let's go to Home Depot. And there was this moment in the room where it was like, you mean we're going to read articles? Is there an HBR article? It's like, no, 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 no. We're going to go to Home Depot. You're going to leave the office and go to Home Depot and talk to people and learn about what makes their approach good. Is it good? Let's find out. And just this fear of leaving the building, both literally and proverbially, it was one of those moments when the metaphor of leaving the building became uh, very literal. This fear of giving up control and mastery. I mean, it's You know, I'm somebody who's been in therapy since I was seven years old, so I think about this a lot in a more personal context. But, you know, we all have this fear of giving up control. And when you're talking to another person, you're giving up control. That is what true customer centricity means, is is recognizing that the control of your business is ultimately in the hands of your customers. And you can't manipulate those customers by moving them around on a dashboard, by reducing them to data points that can easily be copied and pasted and ported from one platform to another. Real people are weirder and scarier and more nonlinear than that. And true customer centricity means giving up the illusion of control. So it's not just about putting up posters that say customer first? (laughs) No. And in fact, you know, when you put up those posters and you don't live it, in in the book Agile for Everybody, I wrote, I have three laws of organizational gravity. And one of them is that people will actively avoid customer-facing work if it's not made part of their day-to-day work and incentives. And I believe that. I think in most organizations, actually learning from your customers is very dangerous because if what your customer wants and what your boss thinks your customer wants are different things, are you going to be the person who brings that information into the organization? Or are you going to say, hey, it's not really my ass on the line if this goes wrong. So sure, that sounds fine. In the product world, the thing I think about all the time in terms of the equivalent of a poster saying we're user-centric is uh, writing user stories. Almost all agile product teams write user stories, but if those user stories are not grounded in user research, then they are not only not customer-centric, but they actually let us pretend that we're being customer-centric when we are, in fact, not being customer-centric. So the, the ritual of customer-centricity 
when it serves as a stand-in for the actual behavior of customer centricity can actually be worse than not doing it at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think about, you know, making decisions based on the customer's best interest is a lot harder than just, you know, saying you're going to do something in the customer's best interest, right? It's when yep. it's when decisions have to be made and decisions yes. have to be made that maybe conflict with your ideas of what's in the company's best interest because they're in the customer's best interest. Like putting that that customer first in decision making is kind of where I feel like, you know, the the rubber hits the road, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely agree with you. So how do you help companies find that customer centricity? In a lot of cases, it's about getting them out of the building. One of the bring things them all to we, Home Depot, right? Bring them all to Home Depot. Get them just talking to people. It is amazing. I did some work a couple of years ago with a company, an entertainment company, that you would think has a lot of people on the ground learning from customers. I asked a room of about 500 people from the marketing function of an entertainment company, how many of you have actually spoken to a customer on purpose in the last six months? Maybe five hands went up out of 500 people in the marketing function at an entertainment company. There's a lot of upside here. (laughs) There's a lot of opportunity. Just getting people into those structured spaces. And one of the things, one of the things we also understand is that you can't just tell people, go talk to customers. We are big believers in using a little bit of structure, a little bit of constraint to help facilitate that so that people feel safe to know that if they do this, there will be an outcome. There will be a maximum amount of time that is going into this. That same company I was working with, somebody came up to me afterwards who I could tell was kind of the person everyone else was looking to, that the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion in the room, who said, I've been shocked at how many times I've heard this. They said, yeah, customer centricity is great, but what if we start doing it and then we don't get any of our work done because we're just too busy talking to our customers all the time? That, to me, is a defensive question and not necessarily a real question. <laughs> but it's something I hear. And, you know, we find that if we can get in and work with a company and give them a constrained and choreographed opportunity to work with customers. When we say choreographed, we mean we, we choreograph the structure, but we let the content emerge. It's really amazing to see what happens and how quickly at times a set of assumptions that a team has had in place for a really long time starts to fall apart when you're actually interacting with a real human and hearing their perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And what always intrigues me too, and I used to, I used to ask the wrong question. I used to ask things like, do you talk to customers a good bit or a lot, right? And uh-huh. you know, 50% of the people would say yes. And I realized that's a bad question because huh. people have a different variant on a lot, right? A lot that's means really different to a lot of people. And then I was like, you know, when they say a lot, it's like, is that monthly? They're like, whoa, that's a lot. And I was like, okay, let's, <laughs> let's set a baseline here. What I think a lot is like, is it at least a few times a week or maybe even every day? And they're like, whoa, that's a lot, a lot. It's like, yes. yeah. So now we start thinking like, how, how often do you talk to customers? Much better question asked than do you speak to customers a good bit or a lot or whatever the, the, the word would be. Uh, and you question. learn a lot from that. You learn a lot. Yeah. Of, people think a lot might mean, you know, once a month. And uh, I would say a lot is once a day and maybe multiple times a day, even if it's just doing things like digging into a support call and calling that customer. Exactly. And, what were you doing when, you, when this happened to you? You know, learning about that situation. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think there's there's a perspective on frequency that fits in here, too. So 
Tell me a little bit more about, you know, how you instruct product managers to start incorporating all these thoughts into their practices. Yeah. So one thing I am very sympathetic to with product managers, we all want to be champions of the customer. We all talk about this, but in in the day-to-day, when you're a product manager, a lot of people want things from you. And those people will be very direct and very loud at times about what they want from you. And it's very hard to prioritize talking to customers, learning from customers over giving your boss what your boss wants, making sure your team has the day-to-day tactical support they need. These are things that very easily fall by the wayside, which is part of why there's a few specific things that we do that we think and we've found are helpful. One is making sure that learning from customers, interacting with customers has as much of a direct human element as interacting with and receiving requests from managers. What I mean by that is if you're a product manager and the day-to-day tactical tasks that you are expected to do arrive in the form of an executive walking over to your desk and screaming at you, and your knowledge of customers comes from a 300-page slide deck, which of these is going to be more important and urgent to you than the other? Again, when we abstract things out, when we take that human piece out of how we learn from our customers, of course it doesn't feel urgent. Of course it doesn't feel important. So one thing we really make an effort to do is, again, put simple time and format-based constraints in place. So rather than it being, oh, read this thing that might be really long and then figure out some way to do this, it'll be, all right, we're going to spend a half hour talking to customers, we're going to bring these people, then we're going to do a 15-minute debrief, and we're going to see what opportunities we have to take these lessons and apply them to the day-to-day work that we're doing now. So putting some structure, some constraints in place, recognizing that those higher-touch, more rich and textured interactions, which might feel like a much bigger investment, actually wind up being a much smaller investment if you time box them. If you actually constrain them, then you get more out of them and things, we, we see this all the time where we tell people, go talk to customers. And like, I don't have time to that. Just send me a deck. It's like, but if you spent 10 minutes talking to your customers and this deck is 300 slides, which of these things is actually taking more of your time and which of these is more likely to meaningfully change the course of the work you're doing? I'm getting off on a, a rant here a little bit, but I feel like this implicit belief that lower interaction, lower touch ways of communicating, save people time, is one of the most egregious and damaging fallacies of this moment in work. And I would like very much to burn it with fire. (laughs) I'm a big fan of rants, so, you know, continue. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, I I will. I mean, this is this is something I've been thinking about so much these days, and it, it, it ties into what brought me and Sonny and Trisha together, you know, we we go into so many companies where they say, we're having too many meetings. And one of the things we ask them to do is to actually track how much of their time day-to-day is spent in meetings versus in emails and reviewing decks and leaving comments on Google Docs and doing these things that play out individually, which makes it, I think, harder to understand the time commitment collectively. And when they actually sit down, it's like, oh yeah, I spent three hours in a meeting today. And then I spent five hours just dealing with email and getting all these other things off of my plate. These other tools, the way we approach them is so often done without time boxing, without constraints, without a sense of importance and prioritization. 
And they easily expand to take up so much of our time. And then when we go and ask what's taking up your time, people tend to feel that it's these higher touch, more human intensive things, not because that's empirically true, but because it feels true. Because that time you're spending sitting in a meeting feels like a waste of time, whereas the time you spend leaving comments in a Google Doc might feel productive because there's some material output that you can look to and say, I did it, I got the email sent out, I left the comment. But when you add up the time that's taken collectively, it is enormous. And in many cases, it is not in service of any particular well-understood outcome. It is really mind-blowing. And I try so hard day-to-day to keep myself honest about this too, because I love being able to get an email out of my inbox. I love being able to resolve a Google Doc comment. There are so many things that give us the sense of work having been done and momentum having been accomplished. But if I look at the most meaningful things I do, it's the conversations. It's the things that, it's not the creation of the document, it's the conversation that document drives. So yeah, these are the things that that occupy my mind all day. That's interesting. And I also feel like there's a cycle, and I think you hinted at it too, there's this psychological aspect of it too, that if, if they're out there having these conversations, having these meetings both internally and with customers, it could change their plan of action. Like, you know, it could mean that work they've done in the past now is is not progressing the way they think it's going to. Yeah. Could just, even though it might be a change for the good, it's, it's a change that they then have to deal with. Well, this is like, I I say often that the most dangerous sentence for product managers is looks fine. When you share something with somebody and what you hear back is looks fine, that means nothing. That means usually that somebody hasn't really looked at it or they have something else to do. That was one of the big lessons I learned early in my product management career. There were a few times when I knew that something would be controversial with somebody, but I tried to cover my ass by sending it to them being like, hey, let me know if you have any feedback. And they just write back, looks fine. I'd be like, phew, I have plausible deniability now. And then when I had actually sit down with them, it's like, here's what we're launching. They'd say, wait a second. And they would say exactly what I could have told you they would have said. And I'd say, well, you said looks fine. And you realize that that is both cowardly and counterproductive. That at the end of the day, especially when you're dealing with people who have authority in an organization, they're not going to say, well, technically I did say that, so I'm no longer upset about this thing, which is very upsetting to me. That's just not how it works. You have to be willing to put the controversial or dangerous thing out there in order to really work through it, especially if you want to work through it up front. This has been my my big crusade with getting teams to work. I have my my one-page, one-hour thing, which I'd be happy to talk about. But basically, getting teams to think subtractively, put stuff down on one page in one hour, and then really use that constraint as a way to force prioritization, which is a huge part of what product managers need to do anyhow. Prioritization matters in terms of the product you build. It also matters in terms of the way you handle your own time and the way you communicate. If you are using constraints to force yourself to think, what is the most important thing for me to communicate to this person right now, you're more likely to actually have the opportunity to meaningfully engage, to understand some of those changes and some of those challenges before you get so far down the line that you feel like you can't go back and revisit things anymore. Now, you've talked about constraints in in a couple of different uh, ways, both internal meetings, customer meetings, and how to manage that better. This is what you you know, have termed before thoughtful constraints, right? Yes, thoughtful constraints. And, and it just doesn't help product managers, you know, specifically we've talked about it in that context, but it could be something other teams can adopt too. 
Yeah. And it's funny because talking it through, I almost feel like the term thoughtful constraints is too thoughtful. When I because what I'm really talking about isn't necessarily thoughtless constraints, but it's it's absolute constraints. It's non-negotiable constraints. It's constraints that we follow as a forcing function. So one page, one hour is a good example of that, right? The idea is that I believe you should never spend more than one page and one hour max working on something before you share it with your team. Because if you go much farther than that, then first of all, you're probably trying to impress them rather than actually get their feedback. Second of all, you're getting so far down the road that you might fall in love with what you do and not want to change it. And third, it's just a lot of time you're going to spend working on something, which is probably not the thing you're ultimately trying to do. So when I bring that constraint to teams, one of the first things that often happens is they start litigating the constraint. It becomes, well, what if we want to make it 30 minutes? What if we want to make it one and a half pages? And these are all fair questions. But the bottom line is the constraint works best when you just follow it. We have so many decisions to make, so much we have to navigate in our day-to-day lives. Part of why I love constraints is that it's one more thing we don't have to choose. It's one more thing where we say, all right, when I'm done, like the clock decides when I'm done. I don't have to decide when I'm done anymore. The clock decides when I'm done. The page decides when I'm done. It's a chance to to outsource one type of decision-making so that you have more energy and acuity to point towards making other decisions. And I am a huge fan of using both template-based constraints and time-box-based constraints to just give yourself somewhere to start without having to think too much about where you're starting. And now this is all turned into a book, right? That's coming out soon yes. in one hour? Um, well, I, I have to write it still. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's forthcoming, you know. But that's on my yeah, on my to do list. Write book. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm working on a book about a book called One Page One Hour. So I, I I started using this one page one hour format because I you know in the work that we do at Sudden Compass, I was advising teams to use constraints to their advantage. And my business partners pointed out to me. They said, you know, Matt, you advise teams to do this but you're still showing us really finished stuff. When we have a workshop, you're still coming with this really fancy built out workshop design plan. And you still get a little pissed off when we tell you that you missed something foundational about it. And they were absolutely right. Part of what informed this idea of one page, one hour is that there are reasons we want to present impressive and finished and polished things. We're human. We want to do a good job. We want our teams to think that we're competent and impressive and smart. But when my business partners pointed this out to me, I wrote out this pledge which you can find at onepageonehour.com, where I said, I pledge to my team that I will spend no more than one page in one hour working on anything before I share it with them. And I printed this out, put it on my desk, slapped a copy of it on the back of my laptop because a lot of the work I do is on site. And I started doing my best to, to live that one page, one hour life. And what was fascinating to me was not just the ways that it helped, but what happened when I did not abide by one page one hour. There were a few times working with my business partners where I would say, oh, they prob- we're probably aligned. I'm just going to go farther with this. And literally every time there was something fundamental that I missed and I wound up having to go back and redo it and feel like I had wasted my time and get into all the spirals of self-recrimination that one gets into when one has worked hard on a thing that needs to be redone. So I've been using this one page one hour approach with a number of teams And just really, I've become a a fanatical advocate for the application of constraints to all things. 
What's also been mind-blowing to me is seeing how simple constraints can transform complex problems, specifically on the order of like organizational transformations, right? So we've all seen companies that are going through a transformation. That transformation becomes a 300-slide deck, and then people talk about it, and they say all this stuff, but nothing really changes on the ground. It's been amazing seeing how applying these absolute constraints to things that can feel enormous and impossible actually make them much more material. I was working with a company a couple months ago, and they were 75 slides into a deck they were building to communicate their organizational transformation plan. And what happened was somewhat predictably, somebody on the leadership team would say, oh, we should also say this. And somebody else on the leadership team would say, oh, we should also say this. And I said, hey, can I take a look at this and try to synthesize it into one page in one hour? And they said, that sounds bizarre, but sure, whatever you want. I did that, brought it back to the team, and suddenly they had to make decisions. <laughs> suddenly they had to say, well, I disagree with that. We can't have that be what we're doing. That doesn't make any sense. Like, we can't say that. We can't tell people that. It got ripped apart, but that was the whole idea. It was just one hour of effort, one page of effort. And having this material thing that was done, that was birthed of absolute constraints, focused the conversation in a way that I have never seen a conversation at that altitude be focused before. And it was such a magical moment for me in terms of going, wow, holy smokes, even as we approach these things that feel enormous, these simple constraints can still be incredibly powerful. Yeah, and a lot of this ends up becoming or affecting how people communicate, right? Oh, heck yeah. I mean, it's, I've always, I think communication is the thread that has gone through all the stuff I've ever done in my life. Uh, you know, music is a form of communication. I was a writer about music. I write, I, I am a writer, I think, above all other things, a communicator. My mom used to run communications for a hospital system in New York. So it's, and my dad's a writer. So I, I you know, I, I grew up around communication. And what's amazing to me is when, you put these constraints in place, it does absolutely change the way that people communicate because the document doesn't become a stand-in for the communication. It becomes something that facilitates the communication. And that's so important. You know, you don't communicate to people by sending them a long thing to read. It doesn't work. It's that human interaction that really drives action and drives change. And if we limit the amount of time we spend doing things ourselves, saying, I'm going to communicate this to you by going off into a cave somewhere, writing this huge thing, I realize I say that to somebody who's about to write another book, but in the context of team and organizational communication, I certainly stand by this. You can't communicate more by interacting less. Yeah, it's interesting too. You know, you talk about skills and we always talk about, you know, hard skills and what hard skills people use. And Google was known for like, oh, product managers need to have technical skills. And uh -huh. there's a lot of argument, which I support about some of the soft skills being more important, some empathy, you know, curiosity, passion, right? More important than kind of the technical skills. Though you, you still need those in, in the company or in the product management group, but maybe not in everyone. But You'd make an argument, and I think there's a good argument that this connectivity skills, these communication skills, are also that this third kind of maybe axis of skill sets you need, and maybe the most important one. I totally yes, yes. You you took the words right out of my mouth in product management and practice, which is one of the books I wrote. 
I talk about connective skills specifically as the skills that are most important to product managers because you know I I don't believe that product managers need hard skills. I don't. I've worked on very technical teams. I've worked with, you know, I think there's this idea that you need specific technical skills to be a product manager. I have found that to be untrue for a number of reasons. First of all, those might not be the particular hard technical skills that your team is using. You know, when I started at Bitly, I had been writing PHP for a while and Bitly was a Python shop. And I think every time I started talking about PHP, it just made me seem like I was trying to show off about something that nobody cared about. So for starters, like the particular technical skills, you know, you come to a job with as a product manager might not be the ones your team is using. And in that case, talking about them too much, as I learned, can be annoying and unhelpful. <laughs> but beyond that, like to me, the, the connective skills piece is can you learn from and understand how your team is using those hard skills? You know, you're not going to learn about those in context by going off and reading a book or going to a boot camp. The best product managers I've worked with, they show up super curious and they can talk to their team about the most technical thing and say, help me understand how this works. Show me why this is important to you. And if you can create that kind of connection, if you can get technical folks thinking about the work they're doing through that lens of, of communication and why it's exciting and why it's important. If you can genuinely, you know, unlock that kind of connection, it's so much more valuable than any fixed concrete technical skill. It's also harder to evaluate for, harder to hire for. I think product management hiring is badly broken across the board, which is also kind of another conversation entirely. It's one of the things that Sunny and Trisha and I all bonded about when we started working together. But if you actually look at the reality of the job on the ground, I have never seen a product manager whose job was uh, made or broken by their quote unquote hard skills. Yeah, there's so many different directions we can go right now. Let me let me yeah. talk, let's talk about technical skills for a second in the sense that like, you know, you, you worked at Google and Google, is, at least in the past and probably still is, though I'm not 100 percent sure, but they've known for wanting their product managers to be have coding skills. Right. Yep. And, I always thought that was frankly wrong. I thought so and think so too. But again, that's one of the things that you learn about a big company like Google or Facebook or Amazon or any big company is that there's the public image of what that company thinks about product management. But so much of the day-to-day -day work is about the relationships, is about the teams, about who is on your immediate team. I know people who work for all of those big companies, and some of them have had great experiences, some of them have had less great experiences. It all depends on who you are, who you're working with, and how those things fit together. When I'm coaching people who are like, oh, you're like, I just want to go work at Google, I'm like, why do you want to go work at Google? I just want to go work at Amazon. Like, why do you want to go do that? Why do you think that will be a good fit for you? What about your particular approach do you think that, that resonates with? Why, why would you rather work at one versus another? Or would you rather work somewhere entirely different? You can't, you know, everything looks different from the outside and from the inside. And for me personally, I have a very, very, very strong point of view about what I think product management is. Um, what I think good product management is, which I think is part of why I have gravitated towards coaching and consulting roles, 
where I can induce other teams and companies to my way of thinking and also change my way of thinking. You know, with a big company, you're going to run up against some set of historical expectations. Like we call call those at Sudden Compass zombie beliefs sometimes. They're things that nobody at the company even really believes anymore. And yet somehow everybody kind of thinks they believe it. Every organization has zombie beliefs and big companies that have well-formed and widely documented cultures tend to have the most rampant and difficult to root out zombie beliefs. So I would argue that at a company like Google, there is a high likelihood that product manager should be technical is a zombie belief in that it is something which is perceived broadly to be true. But if you were to have conversations with a lot of folks working on teams there, they would probably not agree with it. Interesting. So <laughs> you mentioned so many so many areas we can go down here, but uh, what product <laughs> management is? What it what yeah. is? Product management back to the beginning. Yeah, I mean, my favorite definition of product management actually comes from I think I have a copy of it right here. Comes from Melissa Perry's book, Escaping the Bill Trap, which I'm a huge fan of. Melissa talks about product management ultimately being about facilitating a value exchange. And I love that framing. I super, super love that framing that your job is to facilitate an exchange of value between a company and its customers. That feels super right to me. I think that what that looks like, the day-to-day work of product management is about keeping all the pieces connected and aligned and moving forward towards the ultimate goal of facilitating that value exchange. Part of what makes it so hard to pin down what product management looks like day-to-day is that because it takes the shape of who you're connecting and what you're connecting, it's going to look very different, not only from organization to organization, but from team to team within an organization. So there's that, uh, the, there's Martin Erickson's, the Venn diagram of like tech, business, and design, which is kind of a classic product management Venn diagram. And, you know, having heard, had the pleasure of hearing Martin talk about it, you know, I think the idea was these are considerations we should take into account essentially when deciding whether something we're building will effectively facilitate that exchange of value. What I've seen, unfortunately, is companies take that Venn diagram and think of it more like a skill model and say, okay, you need design skills, business skills, and tech skills, which for all the reasons we've been discussing is woefully inadequate and oftentimes just flat out wrong. What you need is really the skills to sit in the middle of those different expertises and whatever other expertises and modes of thought and knowledge exist at your company and pull them all together, which to me is those connective skills, which in my book I call the core skills, communication, organization, research, and execution. The things you need to do to actually pull together, it might be design, business, and technology. It might be that and compliance. If you're working in a very specialized field, there's so much. We did some work a while ago with a... uh, a CPG company where the core team involved scent distribution scientists, people who have a vast wealth of knowledge about the way that particles that carry scent disperse in a room. You got to be able to connect those skills and that knowledge too, if that's the skills and the knowledge on your team. So again, to me, that connective piece that sits in the middle of whatever bizarre multifaceted Venn diagram represents your team and your organization, that's really what the day-to-day work looks like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I always think about, you know, being able to frame a problem and frame and, and help 
yeah. understand the constraints so that they can come up with the right solution for a customer. And that's why I've always felt like, and I'm an engineer actually by background, mm -hmm. uh, even though I'm, I'm mostly a product and marketing person these days. But I always found that you, you look at highly technical product managers and they tend to come in not only with the problem and the constraints, but the solution and be like, build this, right? Yep. And that it falls apart in that, that customer centricity and communications kind of paradigm or framework you've been talking about. Yeah, it's funny. One of the when when I'm in a position to hire or help people hire product managers, the sort of test I consistently run. First of all, and some people listening will probably not like this, but it's true. I have never once hired a product manager who quoted Steve Jobs in a job interview, and I stand by that. Steve Jobs quotes are a big red flag for me because uh, of the day to day of being a product manager. You are not Steve Jobs, and if you start acting like Steve Jobs, you are going to fail pretty miserably. More to the point, the thing I will usually do is give somebody a, a question or a product challenge to kind of talk through, and then I'll give them some reason why their solution wouldn't work. And the big tell for me is, do they treat that information as a gift or do they start defending their original solution? And if they start defending their original solution and telling you why, no, well, we could still then, I'm like, you're not going to be great at this job because... In the real world of product management, those customer insights you get, the feedback you get from people, you need to be able to take all of those things as gifts. You need to be, I mean, up to and including the CEO of your company walking over to your desk and screaming at you, why does this look like this? You got to take that as a gift too, because maybe that person knows something you don't know. You have to be willing to treat things that confound your original plan as valuable information. And if you can't do that, then you wind up in that situation where you have your idea for the solution and you don't take feedback from the engineers on your team. You don't take feedback from your customers. You don't take feedback from anybody. And the solution you put out there is not good. Yeah, I mean, this can be a, it can be tough, though, from a communication standpoint, right? So yeah. what, what advice do you give to product managers to communicate better with those stakeholders, that, whether it be CS teams, executive teams, sales, yeah. engineering make sure they're doing that and still meeting the goals. So one thing I, I believe in very strongly because I have experienced this in my own life is that communication is something that can be practiced and improved. Communication is not some squishy ephemeral thing that you're either good at or you're not. I've gotten so much better at communicating over the last 10 years of my life. Many people I know have as well. And there are a few, you know, when I'm coaching teams, there are often a few specific types of advice I will give. One thing in particular with dealing with executive stakeholders, I advise product managers to pretend that every question they're asked has been asked by uh, an emotionless robot. <laughs> what I mean by this is that often when an executive asks a question, people read into the tone of that question more than they do into the content of that question. Executives are people too. They have their own emotions that they're dealing with. And in most cases, they do not wish the projection of those emotions to override the question that they are asking. So one specific coaching piece of coaching advice I've given to people is pretend that the question you were asked is being read out to you on a screen by a robot. How would you answer it then? Another related specific communication technique I've been using, which, which is another coaching question I found to be really powerful, is... If you worked for the healthiest and most high-functioning organization in the world, what action would you take right now? In other words, if you're not preemptively correcting 
for the fact that you think that this person on your team can't handle bad advice or this person only wants to hear this kind of thing. If none of those constraints existed, what would you say? How would you say it? It's shocking to me how often when people do that and give other people the opportunity to be their best selves, to be the person they would be in that organization without its own assumed constraints and limitations, that they start to become that team and that organization. I I am just endlessly fascinated by the way that humans interact with each other and communicate with each other. And finding some of these powerful coaching questions, finding some of these approaches like one page, one hour that force us to ask each other for help and feedback. It, It continues to blow my mind how meaningful and how impactful these seemingly small interventions can be for teams that are grappling with really big, tough questions. I like that. So I know as we're getting towards the end of this, this episode, let's turn our attention a little bit to you. You know, what do you yeah. see trends in the product community? What do you see happening that product managers should be aware of moving forward? That's such a good question. I think so. The big word I see coming up more and more now is strategic product management. Everybody wants strategic product managers and product managers who can think strategically and operate strategically. And I think this is ultimately a good sign, right? People are looking at this and saying, we don't just want people who are moving Jira tickets around. We don't just want people who are doing this very tactical work. We want people who are strategic product managers. Problem is when you actually dig a little deeper, what does a strategic product manager mean? What does it mean to do strategic product management? I think where we're at right now is that strategic product management has kind of become the same thing when people were talking about data-driven product management three or four years ago, and that it's become shorthand for basically, I want a product manager who never makes any mistakes and leaves me alone. And that is always, I think, going to be the fantasy (laughs) that whether it's by being data-driven or by being strategic, that we will be able to get product managers who come in and somehow know the right thing to do, don't make any mistakes and deliver untold value for the company without having to unsettle or disturb any of the existing power dynamics and defense mechanisms of the organization. I think that what's happening now, which is again, totally what happened with data-driven product management is the same things are happening when people come in and are told to be strategic product managers, which is that they come in and they say, all right, I'm your strategic product manager. What's our company strategy? And leadership says, well, company strategy is to make all the money and the number go up and number good. And the product managers are like, well, okay, maybe I need a little bit more than that. I, I think that the big thing I see here in this world and this conversation of strategic product management that strategy and prioritization are two sides of the same coin. They're the same thing, essentially. Strategy is is the high-level piece, but prioritization is how you put that into action. And if I could get folks thinking about product management and strategic product management to understand one thing, it's that strategic product management is not going to get you everything you want right now any more than data-driven product management is going to get you everything you want right now. At its best, product management will help you better understand the trade-offs you make and the things you don't do. Good product management is always subtractive product management, not additive product management. And I think the sooner we can get everyone in an organization to understand that 
there's no such thing as a product manager so good that they make constraints and trade-offs not exist. Happier we will all be. <laughs> I, I think that's good. We would be happier if we all could understand that, I think. So let's wrap up with a couple quick questions. Sure. Your favorite product. Right now, the product that's been changing my life is Calendly, which is a company out of Atlanta. It's an automated scheduling. It's actually how we set up this time. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you why I love it and why I think it is an interesting example of how subtle changes in the way we communicate can uh, make a big difference. So scheduling, especially two people from outside of the same organization scheduling. I send you an email that says, how about Wednesday at three? You look at your calendar and say, Wednesday at three doesn't work. How about Thursday at four? I look at my calendar, Thursday at four doesn't work. Calendly just gives you basically a set of times you can sign up for. So I will send you my Calendly link and you will pick a time from the available slots. Um, We've got something booked. The first time I received a Calendly link from somebody, I took it as a bit of an affront. I was like, oh, excuse me, fancy person, like gotta go use this weird tool to pick a time. But by the second or third time, I realized that it was making my life much easier in part because that exchange of timing is itself always a loaded exchange. There's always some invisible dynamic that creeps into how we ask each other for time. How much time are we asking for? How many options am I giving you? It always gets a little loaded. And I love that Calendly just kind of takes this very simple automated, like here are the times I'm available, sign up for one, and then you automatically get a Zoom link. It takes some of the charge out of that in a way that's been really fascinating for me to experience. And it's also just saved me a ton of time in terms of sending emails back and forth and thinking about these things. So it's a good example of how you know the tools we use and the way we use those tools are in this constant strange dialogue with our communicative and emotional lives and the way we interact with each other as humans. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, <laughs> that's true. I had Aji from Calendly on a, an earlier episode. Mm-hmm. I do like that product. I've also found that if you want to seem like a little, maybe less like that important, pretentious person, you can be like, hey, here's two times I'm available. If those don't work, here's my Calendly link. Oh, right? I like that. And yeah, that the, feels like you're not forcing someone into a tool, but you're giving them the means to not go back and forth to try to you know coordinate a time. So I, I like, like that. It. The thing I've been doing is telling people like, in order to keep my own to keep myself from mixing up time zones, I've been using Calendly. Would you mind signing up for some time? Which is also entirely true because I travel a lot and I cannot keep track of time zones, and I have made some funny mistakes. Yes, yes. It's inevitable. I think we all make funny times on mistakes, or at least I know I do too. So it's like yep. Well, one final question today, Matt, and this has been a blast. Uh, what, about three words, what about three words to describe yourself? You know, when, when I saw and thought about this question, the first words that came to mind were doing my best. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sticking to that. I think, you know, it's, uh, I'm doing my best. We're all doing our best. And, and uh, you know, my... My wife and I joke often that the, the sentence that is uttered the most in our household is, I'm just, I just want to do a good job. And it's true. We just want to do a good job. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, thank you again. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you.